0: Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Today on Backstory, the bad news first teens are reading fiction less many citing the lack of access to good reads as well as other digital distractions the good news academics at the university of deakin are looking at how to connect these young people with books that they will love associate professor leonie rutherford from deakin's school of communication and creative arts joins me later in the hour to talk about the study and its findings now, sadly, reading might be declining, but the book nerds among us have a connection to our early book loves that is an almost visceral part of who we are. Anne of Green Gables, Jenny, Noms of Broomsticks, Emily of New Moon, The Secret Garden and The Narnia Chronicles are just a few of the books that helped shape me and my childhood. Now novelist and longtime time critic Jane Sullivan has written a collection of essays, Storytime, where she re-examines her childhood reads, among them Alice in Wonderland, Winnie the Pooh, The Magic Pudding and The Wind in the Willows, and discusses the impact they had on her and how she sees them as an adult as well as some of the things she's learnt about them and their at times problematic themes and authors in the interim. That is coming up on Backstory. Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app. Alice in Wonderland, Wind in the Willows, The Narnia Chronicles, all us book nerds have childhood loves that helped shape us and our love of books. And author and book critic Jane Sullivan is no exception. Now, Jane has reexamined some of these childhood reads, their effect on her as a child and how she sees them, and there are times problematic themes in authors as an adult. It's all part of a collection of essays, story time, and Jane Joins me now to talk about it, Jane Sullivan. Welcome to Backstory. Hello, Mel. I'm gl- glad to be here. It is uh, such a pleasure to read a book um, about uh, about the act of reading because, of course, that is what got us all into this mess, mm. yes. <laughs> being here and talking about books and... Uh, I found this a particularly interesting one because you touched right at the very beginning on something that I have pondered myself about my current reading habits and how I felt about books as a child. Uh, Like you, I carry with me the deep and, you know, loving memory of books and characters that I read when I was a child. And it almost feels like people that I knew, you similarly have that experience. But now reading a lot of books, uh, especially when you kind of, you know, fit a huge number of them into a short space of time because you need to review or talk about them. I find I don't remember them as well. Uh, and you discuss this particular thing in your at the start of your book. I know it's an odd place to start uh, a discussion of this sort, but I sort of wanted to touch on that and why you think it is. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a bit of a worry. I, I found that
2: I read read a lot of books for my job because I write about books for for the age. I have a weekly column um, discussing books and um, I interview authors and so on. And I do find that... I'll have read a book, say, last year that I absolutely loved and then I'll think about it and I can't remember anything about it. I'll I'll have certainly forgotten all the characters' names if it's a novel and I'll have forgotten the details of the plot and the places and so on and I'll maybe just recall a vague sort of feeling I had when I read the book and that might be it. Um, But the interesting thing is that it's still the books I read when I was a child that really do stay in my memory more than anything else. And uh, although I found one, the thing I did with this book was I went back to reread the books I'd read as a child that I really loved and in one case didn't love so much. And I did find that Um, Although I'd made some big mistakes with my memory and that was a bit mortifying. (laughs) We'll talk about those, Jane. We'll talk (laughs) about those. Even so, I did find I had a really, really vivid memory of these books that I'd read really early. In some cases, it was because I read them more than once. But I think more than anything, it was because they had such a deep impression on me between the ages of 7 and 11. Those were the the key formative years for me when I was reading books. And those are the books that have stayed with me all my life, more than ones I've read since.
0: Look, I think it's absolutely... Absolutely no accident that you've set off this collection with Alice in Wonderland because it it kind of does perfectly encapsulate, I think, the act of reading as a mm. child, which is that you're not just reading; you're actually experiencing it as though it is real. Indeed, like it, yes. you're living it. Um, for me, I think my Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice in Wonderland, in a way was a book called Jenny by Paul Gallico, uh, yes. which
2: I you know the book I don't, but I know Paul Gallico's writing. Yeah. Yes, so yes.
0: look in that book, uh, a small child. Um, becomes a cat and learns, you know, and essentially I, I thought it was it was magic because how did this man know all about the interior life of a cat? Um, and so I sort of believed it and, mm. you know, loved this idea of um, of a boy turning into a cat. Um, in this collection you really do re-examine your connection with these stories um, and, and I do want to sort of delve into the Alice in Wonderland as. Uh, story itself, because I think it is one that, that kind of in many, many ways not only covers the act of reading, but also what it's like to come back to a book as an adult uh, yeah. that you loved mm-hmm. as a child. Can you talk a little bit about that um, that essay? Well, the Alice in Wonderland essay was, uh,
2: I did remember quite a lot about, I, I put the two books together, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, because I've got them pretty well intertwined in my memory. So I went back and, and reread them and uh, I discovered that um, I'd, been, I'd identified very much with Alice as a child because she you know, she was about my age and she was a little girl and she was in this strange world. Um, and the strange world was a lot like living with grown-ups because the, the creatures that she meets, these eccentric weird creatures like you know the Mad Hatter and the March Hare and the Caterpillar and so on, um, that they're a bit mad, strange, and they talk down to her all the time and they often tell her off and they're, they're not very kind on the whole. In fact, some Some of them are quite rude and horrible to her. And it's all a bit like the way that grown-ups behave to children. So I I kind of felt familiar with it almost at once. And another thing I noticed was that Alice was an incredible chatterbox, which I'd forgotten. (laughs) Um, But I think that the other strange thing was there were things that really, really scared me when I read the book when I was a child and they didn't scare me anymore but the things that really scared me now were the things I felt as a mother might feel or Mm. grandmother might feel for a child so when she falls down the rabbit hole I'm thinking oh my god what a terrible thing she's bound to be injured. I know she's not of course but it feels to me as if she's going to be terribly injured and it never occurred to me to worry about that when I was reading as a child and then she meets a huge puppy. Um, She's shrunk the puppy's normal size but she's shrunk down to a really tiny size and I I'm terrified for her that the puppy's going to maul her or, or bite her or eat Literally her. Literally, be killed yeah. by cuteness. Yeah, and I never worried about that the first time, but I was terrified of the Jabberwock, which is this mythical monster in the in the the nonsense poem that Lewis Carroll writes. And there was a a terrifying picture of this dragon, huge dragon like creature, and it was particularly scary for
0: some reason because he was wearing a waistcoat. And I found that really <laughs> awful. <laughs> Uh, you do raise some extremely disturbing uh, points about uh, the author, Reverend Dodson, otherwise mm. known as Lewis mm. Carroll. Um, the you know who was who very much based Alice on a child that he knew, and had what in hindsight appears to be a very disturbing relationship with young children. Can you talk a little bit about how you've wound that in, and and also with your own childhood experiences? Well, yes, this goes
2: back to uh, not quite to my childhood, but when I was sixteen, uh, I was asked at school to write an essay about a famous writer and I chose Lewis Carroll a.k.a. Charles Dodgson. So I went to the library to get a book to find out what I could about him and it just so happened that I found a book that was examining all the evidence that suggested that he was a pedophile because he he, um, he was very fond of, of little girls, he used to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, he took photographs of them in the nude or the near nude uh, which was not an uncommon thing in, in Victorian times and nobody knows for sure and there's evidence either way but it, there is a suggestion that his interest in little girls was was not a healthy one and um, I thought oh I'll be really clever, I'll write an essay about this and I'll get top marks so I plagiarised the book quite shamelessly and wrote this essay and um, I was devastated when the teacher gave me a terribly low mark and she said well, you know, this was very good until you tried to be too clever because, you know, it is not up to us to question works of genius and the people who wrote them. And I think she had a point uh, looking back on it. And I I think looking back on myself as a 16-year-old, I was just a smart-ass. I didn't really care about Lewis Carroll. I didn't really care about Alice, whether she'd been abused or not. I, I just wanted to be clever and show everybody how clever I was. And I didn't even dare admit I'd plagiarised the whole thing anyway. So... Uh, looking back on it i have these sort of very mixed feelings now mm. i i still love the books i think that the um the playfulness and and the the clever um uh, work with words and, and so on is, is just delightful. And Alice's adventures are still enchanting to me. Uh, and I have to somehow, it's, it's a dilemma we all feel, don't we, when we, we come across a lovely work which is written by someone who may not be um, as admirable as we would like to think. And what do we do? You know, I mean, you can't cancel. Lewis Carroll, you, know, you can't use those sort of standards on somebody. Um, so I remain with mixed feelings and it's a tricky one.
0: Yeah, I did. I mean, I found this incredibly disturbing mm. and uh, and trigger warning. I. You do mention a particular incident that happened to you yes, as a child that yes. um, that you then reflected upon um, that you'd sort of, you know, been as innocent um, in experiencing this as, as perhaps, you know, Alice was in her world mm. um, and it was quite, you know, it was an incredibly moving sort of um, part of this, this essay. Uh, I do want to talk about some of the other elements of the book and one that I believe will be quite mm. controversial among <laughs> readers and that is your reference to little women. Oh, yes. Um, so, <laughs> so jane sullivan um i think uh, one of the things that that some little women uh lovers will be quite appalled by was that uh, you you own and i think this is enormously brave of you to not have censored yourself that you sought beth was in fact the writer in oh, the family. I know.
2: I can't believe I <laughs> thought that. But believe you. I, thought this that. is what I mean about the terrible mistakes we make in our memories. I thought that Beth was the writer in the family, and of course, as every Little Women fan knows, it's Jo. Of course, and, it's Jo. And so, when I reread it, I was horrified to discover I'd made this mistake. But okay, uh, I'm sorry, Little Women fans, but I'm going to upset you now because when I read the book in the first place, I did not enjoy it, and I thought, well. I ought to be fair and go back and read it because it's supposed to be this great classic. It's a book written especially for girls and there were very few of those when I was young and I really, maybe I wasn't fair to it and I should have another read. So I read it again and I discovered that um, I still didn't like it, I'm afraid, <laughs> and mainly because it's a very heavy moralising book and we're, we're being hit over the head with the morals all the time. Um, I did feel much more um, fond of Jo the second time round and that was for a weird reason because when I read the, fir- the book the first time, I th- I was jealous of Jo. Uh, she was this young writer and she had this career. She, she was only in, in her teens but already she'd had stories published and she'd won awards and prizes and lots of money and then she had a novel published and everybody was uh, very thrilled about that. And here I was at the age of I think I was nine and I, my career hadn't started at all. I'd been writing and writing for <laughs> ages, but nobody wanted to publish what I'd written. And my mother had actually sent a manuscript of mine off to a publisher unknown to me. And um, and then she showed – in those days, they used to do reader's reports and all sorts of things. And, and I, she got a reader's report. And she showed it to me, I think – you know, thinking that I'd be encouraged by what a real-life publisher said. And, of course, it was a, a terrible report which said what a dreadful book this was. And they weren't <laughs> judging it as the work of a nine-year-old. They're judging it as the work of an adult. So I was, I was thoroughly that is um, pretty miserable. pretty horrible, really, when you think <laughs> about so it. I, well I, done, So I thought, you. well, you know, here's
0: Jo and she's so successful and I'm getting nowhere. I hate her. <laughs> well, I think that's a fair reason. Um, but, look, I, I, I mean, one of the things that you do raise in your uh, sort of rereading of Little Women uh, is talking about the author Louisa May Alcott Mm. and the fact that in fact, you know, that that Joe was a heavily autobiographical figure. Indeed. That yes. uh, she was, in fact, writing, was kind of, you know, publishers of the time were sort of forcing her into this this moralising standard, the kind of homilies that were directed at young women, which is to yes. be, you know, to be good and unassuming and giving and not at all, you know, like not a Joe character. Indeed. And, and if so, anything, she fought back against absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, and
2: uh, it is a very moralising book. And, and the end of it, in particular, if you get to the end of the book, which is uh, what was originally called Good Wise. But, if you get to the end of that at and, and Joe, in my opinion, has married the wrong person and she 's had all these boys and she 's teaching the boys' school and and she 's never going to get a chance to get back to her writing i 'm quite sure of that so it 's a in my view it 's a tragic ending, but there you go um, but there there is still is this aspect that um, where was i that, uh, that um, little women to me is written by a uh, someone who was uh, it, under great constraint, um, her career as a writer was very fraught in many ways. She had to support her family. They were they were very hard up at times. They had this uh, strange, eccentric um, father who uh, left them to fend for themselves pretty much. And uh, uh, at times, um, the, the Joe character, aka um, um, the author, um, was was having to support the family, and mm. it was really difficult. and And she did try and fight back against that. that you know that moralizing tendency of the time, and and she did worry about whether her, uh, she was creating art or whether she was just writing pot boilers to mm. you know to, to make ends meet. So I think it was difficult for her, and and um, that was
0: reflected in the character of Joe. And I had read somewhere that I think she was you know they very much wanted those sequels, uh, even though she'd wanted to leave Joe as an unmarried mm. woman, much like herself. Um, she'd rejected the, the yes, hero yes. very much against convention. And, um when she was asked to, to, you know, get married to to the person that everyone was sort of, you know, barracking for as the love interest. Um but she when when she was sort of told that you know really it wasn't an option joe had to get married mm. she decided to pick the most unlikely <laughs> um suitor for her her character so that joe could have someone that she considered to be an equal um, mm. and could be an equal in that marriage so i think she was really trying to be quite subversive in those books and um she was trying yeah, i mean she we was trying have, as much as she could. we
2: have to judge these books by the the conventions of the day we can't really judge them by what's happening in 2019 so i, I think i'm prepared to make a lot of Allowances for Little Women now that I wasn't prepared to make at the time. And I do
0: respect, I think I will say I respect the book even though I don't love it if you've just joined us and you're wondering what you're listening to and why we are talking about little women with such a gusto, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. am Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Jane Sullivan about her collection of essays, Storytime, which is based on her reading habits as a youngster between the ages, I think, I believe you said of uh, nine and 11, seven and 11, seven and 11 rather. Uh, and, uh, your experiences of those books as a child and later uh, reconsidering them as an adult. Uh, I will touch on at least uh, one other um essay in this collection. And and before I do, um, you have actually gone to the effort of talking to other writers about mm-hmm. their reflections on both yes. books that, on you know, on the books that you cover, but also their alternatives to those books. Uh, how, why did you decide to include those little uh, epigraphs in that? Well, the actually, that was my publisher's idea, Ventura Press. And, and at first I thought, oh, well, you
2: know, they're just chasing sales. But actually, I think it was a very good idea. Um, I think it adds an extra dimension to the book that wouldn't be there without those those uh, quotes. So every now and then we have a quote from a, a, a well-known Australian author. Some of them write for children, some of them write for adults. It's a wide range of of people, and um, it's it's really. I think it's excellent to have those quotes. Sometimes they're talking about the same books as I am. Sometimes they're talking about completely different books. So it just widens the whole scope of the thing. And the great thing was that I found that these writers were very generous and very enthusiastic and very happy to share their their memories with me and and with the readers of this book. So that, so it was delightful to have that extra dimension.
0: Uh, I wanted to talk about um, the magic pudding because, in hindsight, it is one of the most creepy stories. Oh, uh, really it's, it's shocking, it's so <laughs> shocking. Um, and you know, and yet, you know, many of us as children kind of delighted in it. Uh, can we talk about this extremely yeah. odd? Story. I, I, look, I
2: loved the Magic Pudding at the time, and I still love it now. I think it's brilliant. I think the, the illustrations, in particular, are just big stunning. Big um, big and and uh, so I'm a huge fan of of, of um, the Magic Pudding. But it did surprise me when I came to reread it how incredibly violent it is. Uh, it's got this wonderful violent language that Norman Lizzie pretty well in, invented. It looks like swearing. It isn't actually swearing, but it looks as if it is. And and uh, I remembered it almost word for word, which was extraordinary. But the pudding owners are really, they're guilty of murder. I and I completely <laughs> forgotten about this or had ignored it at the time. But... Um, they they get the pudding from this guy who they push off an iceberg in order to steal the pudding from him so he presumably perishes in the icy water and then they, when the pudding thieves who are a possum and a wombat try and grab the pudding off them what they do is, is just lay into these, these uh, possum and wombat and, who usually try and run away but the pudding thieves chase after them and beat them up every single time and on one occasion they push the a possum into the fire and I read all this and I thought oh great you know, oh they bish bash wham you know give it to them sock it to them and I'm a bit horrified now at my violent tendencies as a child <laughs> but I think it was good it sort of got it out of my system on the page and, and that was what was good about it
0: well I mean uh, you know in this kind of vague this sentient kind of pudding that uh, that people are eating like it's yes. really, really yeah, it's, kind it's, of a, just, it's a real uh,
2: life pudding and yet people eat it and yeah. then it just keeps coming back to to life again and
0: that in itself is a, a creepy idea it's so creepy uh I mean, I guess one of the things that really did come out reading through this is that there's a really dark strain through these children's books, particularly the older ones. And yes. and as I'm th- this is something that, you know, there's a lot of discussions about whether or not um, things are appropriate for certain reading mm. ages. But the more you read these, the more you realise that they often grappled with themes that, you know, that children would be facing in ways that maybe a childish mind could start to approach. Uh, yes. I'm thinking about even things like, you know, I can remember reading Water Babies uh, when I was a youngster at something that a lot of people, um, you know, maybe uh, don't necessarily recall, Mm. Um, but it was essentially about a child that probably dies. Uh, And it's really, it's sort of grappling with those themes. A lot of modern books do sort of touch on um, some of those kind of themes as well. Do you think that is an important part of this kind of reading? Very much so,
2: yes. I I think uh, what I discovered when I went back to read these books, particularly the ones for slightly older kids, was that... um, one of the things that I needed to do as a child was to face up to my fears. And these were very uh, – we, we forget sometimes how scared children are, how terrified they are by things, but seem to us quite ridiculous. Um, and one of the things I did was I went back and read a book of short stories called Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. And there was one story in that book that still scares me. Um, it's not a supernatural story it's, um, it's a story about a boy who is possibly autistic Or, or um, I, I'm not quite sure what, what the, the problem is But he seems to have some kind of mental illness And he feels as if he's been surrounded by snow all the time It's called Silent Snow, Secret Snow And that story absolutely terrified me Because I thought I was going to turn into this boy And I thought I was going to sort of shrink away Into some tiny little seed And I'd ignore everybody And, and just live in my own little snowy world And the awful thing about it was that part of me wanted that to happen. And that was a really, really scary thing to face up to. And even when I reread the story, I found it difficult to go back into it. And I felt spooked for about half an hour afterwards. Mm. Originally, I felt spooked for weeks and weeks afterwards until I finally realized that the snow wasn't going to come and get me after all. And so we, we need that, and, and there, are, there are a number of those experiences. There was going into um, the Dark Island in uh, one of the, the C.S. Lewis books, the Narnia books, so The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That's another thing I needed to do. And um, there was a wonderful book by um, Alan Garner, The Weird Stone of Brisingaman, which is um, it's a supernatural story, but it also involves uh, part of the story is when the children have to go down a mine and they have to negotiate these terrifying passages in the mind. It's the most claustrophobic thing I've ever read in my life and probably will continue to be the most claustrophobic thing I've ever read. But all those fears were necessary. I needed to go through them Mm. and I needed not only to experience them again, but also to feel that I had the strength in myself to face them and overcome them and I needed that at the time and I
0: think one of the reasons I went back to read these stories was I needed to do it again so There, is, was a, all good. there is a book uh, The Owl Service by Alan Garner mm. that I read uh, or started reading as around you know the age of 10 or so and I remember being fi- finding it so horrifying and I've never gone back mm. to read it since and now <laughs> I am tempted to do that to find out what exactly it was that caused such existential oh, fear. Oh you must I'm 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 very
2: evangelistic about this I'm now telling everyone go back and read your childhood books particularly the
0: ones that scared you because you'll learn something from them well uh Jane Sullivan. I have certainly learned some things reading. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quite accusatory. Um, I actually very much enjoyed um, going through uh, your reads and, and, you know, really looking at your, your very kind of reflective um, approach to, to this and very generous approach. Um, it was quite enjoyable. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jane Sullivan. Great pleasure. Thank you, Mel. That was Jane Sullivan, uh, author, book critic and uh, the author of Storytime, a collection of essays where Jane reflects upon her early childhood read love loves and best reads and not so good reads. Uh, And I'm sure that any uh, very nerdy bookish uh, person is going to have very strong opinions about this, but will also probably enjoy it for that very thing. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, teens are reading fiction less, many citing the lack of access to good reads, as well as other digital distractions. The good news academics at the University of Deakin are looking at how to use digital platforms to help connect young people with books that they will love. Associate Professor Leonie Rutherford from Deakin School of Communication and Creative Arts joins me now to talk about the study and what it hopes to achieve. Leonie, uh, welcome to Backstory. Thank you very much. Now, look, it was one of those um, great sort of sigh moments when I sort of looked at this uh you know this announcement of the study uh to think that perhaps people weren't reading as much i know there's you know as with you know each kind of generational shift um and shift in in media focus there is often a great bemoaning of what is lost um and i'm sure there are many gains and we can can you know talk i'm sure until the cows come home about things that are good that people also get out of um playing video games and things like that uh, but one of the things that you raise in this particular sort of uh, study is that there are really important things that people gain from reading, particularly fiction, that would be a great loss if uh, if people stopped doing so. Can, we, can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, certainly. Um, well, there's quite a lot of research that
1: suggests that reading fiction helps in building citizenship values and some studies suggest that um, it's a key... Um, genre for building empathy, get, letting oneself into the perspectives and lives of others. Um, so I think that would be sad if we lost that. One of the things that I guess prose fiction can do is to let you inside um, the heads of other characters in a way that I guess screen narrative doesn 't quite able to capture that sort of introspection so that 's possibly why fiction is found to have that sort of role
0: in building empathy. Is it, is it kind of that act of imagination where things aren't filled in for you? Do you think that that's sort of the area that, that we're looking at, that maybe people um, could be gaining a lot more from when it comes to fiction? That's possible. I
1: actually don't know the answer to that. It'd be lovely to
0: know the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, that
1: is one of the differences of mode, isn't it? In a sense that um, a lot of affect and understanding of motivation is in the gaps in the gaps between the words. Um, I love my screen fiction. Um, I am wedded to my eye gadgets as well as anyone else, so I'm not denigrating um, those who choose to get their stories by um, screened modes. I think reading has a lot to offer, and I think um, the ability to read, certainly um, uh, reading for pleasure, I think, is um is something that we hone in on because studies consistently find, research consistently finds that reading for pleasure is a great predictor of um, doing well at school and having greater opportunities when you leave school. So I think that's partly because if you love doing it, you get more practice at it and then you can use those um, literacy skills to help you navigate all those things that are written and in
0: our persuasive world that we live in. And yet, uh, these, this act of reading is declining. Uh, you sort of noted in um, obviously the intention behind this particular study that there is a, a great decline in sort of you know uptake of library membership, mm-hmm. and you know even the the kind of gatekeepers I think of, of some good reading material are starting to very much change. And I guess that's where your study starts to step in. What exactly are you going to be looking at in terms of how to connect uh, young readers with things that? They really want to read. Yes.
1: Um, I should say that that question, a study is called Discovering a Good Read, Cultural Pathways to Reading for Australian Teens. And it, and my team has been looking at teenagers and reading from a cultural perspective for a while. And our, we did a pilot study where we... Um, we were interested in the uptake in, uh, you know, the, in the publishing industry of e-books and just trying to understand whether digital platforms were um, being used for digital reading. And um, we found some interesting things there as well. But we just wanted to um, look at reading preferences and uh, a, on a broader scale. And one of the things we asked was, well, what would make you read more than you currently do? And we had a lot of options. And... Um, and depending on how you saw yourself as a reader identity, certain things went up and down. But across the board, if you put everybody in there, the one thing they said was, if it was easier to choose a good book. Mm. Um, and since our content creators and our publishers um, really want to connect, re- really want young people to discover, what we, well, we wanted to look at what are the cultural pathways of you being able to discover something that might, you know, that you really might want to read. So whereas a lot of studies may have looked at reading from various different kinds of aspects, um, ours is a multidisciplinary team. We're really wanting to do like a cultural map um, from the supply side, the publishers, how do they choose what they're going to um, produce for their audiences, how do booksellers decide what are on their shelves and then how do the parents, the teens, um, the teachers interact with with that supply side um, and um, build up their own recommendation networks obviously we're working with publishers and booksellers and we're working with librarians who uh, the latter in particular and booksellers really um, see their role in recommending um, uh, uh, based on what's out there Um, but across the board, how do we get that information and what's out there with these traditional cultural intermediaries more in touch with, you know, potential readers. So the digital side of it, since, you know, we all live digital lives, social media lives, we wanted to explore the reading culture in the digital ecology, what's out there on on, um, uh, Goodreads and Wattpad and mummy blogs and... um, all sorts of other um, digital spaces where reading publics or reading culture might be promoted. Is that that a way where our traditional cultural intermediaries like libraries and booksellers and teachers can use those spaces and what's successful there?
0: Um, That will be one arm of the study. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Associate Professor Leonie Rutherford from Deacon's School of Communication and Creative Arts, who is discussing a new study that is going to look into teens' uh, reading habits and you know how they come across reads and books that they may want to access um, to reignite that love of reading that is so important uh, to our uh, cultural lives and indeed other parts of our lives such as having empathy or even political engagement um, this is a really interesting area that you've raised and you've said that you've sort of studied and, and found some evidence for as well is this this notion that um, that the act of reading does include things like having a kind of um, cultural or political engagement I am particularly interested in that and I, and I have talked on this show before about I, the fact that when I was younger, I think much of my sort of political influence and sense of, um, of even things like great historical tides or events were things that I learned not through non-fiction books, but actually through fictional representations of them. And what kinds of things uh, had have been discovered about this area? Um about promoting political engagement. Well, yeah, yeah, literally, kind of feeling like you're, uh, you know, engaging with citizenship. I think sure, is the is sure. the literal words in the study.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, um, uh, we're going slightly into another area of research that I've looked at with um, PhD students: and the idea of deep reading um, and narrative strategies that promote engagement with characters that's probably when you talk about younger readers that's you know anything that's too polemic is going to put anybody off right so we that's not a way through so one of the ways in which I guess diverse perspectives um are able to be fostered through fiction is in a sense putting you in the shoes or in the mind of the other of various others um in nerdy narrative theory we call this focalisation, you know, whose head are you inside, um, which is something that fiction does in, in its own particular way. Um, so there are texts in a way that um, are have been set up in order to either make you aware of your assumptions or... Or um, really get you in the shoes of the other. I've, I guess with things like premier's prizes and so on, we've we've had a flood of things like refugee narratives. And some people won't even get them off the shelf. But one of the things that those sorts of stories do, just like come back where you came from, does you know, on SBS, is you put yourself in the shoes of the other. It's easier to to, to be a distance. Now fiction does that in a different way than actually taking you to um, where the Rohingya come from. Is you know, come back where you came from does it's a way of getting you to engage affectively with a member of the other group and put you in the in the position of their struggles that's one way that empathy and therefore a kind of civic engagement is possible through engaging with certain kinds of fiction other fiction sets you up to have your assumptions questioned. for example there's um can't get the title exactly right but it's got something like tick tyler in the in the in the um title and um the writer of this novel has um avoids using the personal pronoun mm. so you have you know an active engaged sort of hero that you're following through it's not till the last page you realize it's actually a girl so you get to the end of a book like that and you're left thinking oh, you know one of my ass- assumptions. Yeah, yeah, my assumptions. So that's another way that writers can use elements of craft um, to promote. Um, political engagement, uh, fascinating study. It's not yeah. the current one, but it's fascinating. Really, yeah, yeah, and I
0: imagine, of, of course, now we have a lot more diversity in, in, among mm. writers or increasing diversity among writers. We could certainly use more, uh, you know, and, and that as a result is resulting in characters that more and more mm. children of all different backgrounds and genders can relate to. Uh, I am really interested actually in in kind of this idea of not being able to get your hands on Goodreads or not mm. knowing where to find them and um, being obviously a certified book nerd myself that we had a small library um, in our classroom and this is you know obviously not the only library in that school but um, I seem to remember that book by book that ended up actually back at my house I think Mm. I'm admitting on air to having stolen my class library sorry class I don't think anyone else noticed (laughs) um but you know having been the resident book nerd in Mm. that particular primary school class uh, I know that there are but once you have the kind of addiction for books Mm. you will do anything to find them and I I met a sort of um daughter of a friend who is a similar kind of book nerd but she has managed to find ways to to download books I'm not going to say legally or illegally um Mm. to get her hands on that next read whenever one is mentioned to her is that something you're sort of finding that there are a particular cohort of people who will still manage to get a hold of things regardless
1: look absolutely um and um, we did a lot of work on just baselining reading behaviours in the pilot study. And, I mean, the good news is that there are book, book nerds still out there, you know, like and there are about, when we say that, you know, reading drops off in the teenage years, there's, there's about 16% of, you know, you can call them adult, avid readers or book nerds who will continue to read right through the pressures of high school, right through, you know, that um, young adult young adulthood they'll they'll find books anywhere um there's a group in the middle you know that can read very well um and um so that, that's not a um a thing that they actually need help with being able to read um and it's quite a largish group you know probably about 40 percent who could if they wanted to and are choosing not to and i think that's um uh that's the category that it sees that I guess librarians and teachers are more that this sort of intervention can probably or this sort of study can help, you know, them connect. So obviously um if a book's taken up in uh, by a media franchise, everybody knows about it, everybody wants to read it. The Harry Harry po- you know, Harry Potters, um, the Hunger Games, um, whatever, you know, um that generates real visibility for a, mm. a book brand um, they wouldn't have been made into films if they didn't already have a readership you know, unless you're you know looking at a you know the Australian Children's television Foundation or someone like that is going to pick up books that are perhaps not a huge blockbuster success um, but within that you know a, a really good um, youth librarian will say, well, if you like this, you like this. But if if teenagers and they're not are not coming through the library doors as much as they did when they were younger and they're not going through their websites... Um, who are the cultural intermediaries? Who are the influencers? You know that can reach young people. That's what we really want to know, I think. And um, you know, we talk a lot about Instagram inf- influencers and social media influencers. Mm. Is there a you know are there positive examples of that? So um, yes, there's, there are people that um, continue continue to be book nerds and will find books anyway. Anywhere. There are others that perhaps, you know, they really enjoyed reading The Hunger Games. What are some other dystopian fantasies, you know, that I might like to read? Who can tell me what the next read is? That might not be too hard if you lived I mean, a little yeah, bit from. And yeah, this
0: might be outside the scope of what you're doing, but I know that there is starting to be a bit more of a movement in game technology now where there, you know, there's a bit more interactive um, narrative mm. designs going on and um, things termed interactive novels. Um, is that something that you have even found? talking to kids about that they're engaging with more this idea of narrative in games um, could that be a way um, because of course like every generation thinks that you know the, that the mo that they grew up with is the thing mm. um and as you know i've just seen in jane sullivan's book about reading um she was told by her parents that she should put down the book because it was ruining her health so that she could go outside and play we say that now about things like games um and you know getting this idea of of you know what a book is into a game do you feel mm like that could be a way as well to reengage kids with that sort of active imagination. I, I wouldn't downplay that for
1: a second. There's, you know, um, I guess in the pilot we did find people who say, well, look, I don't read books but I d- read text in my games. Um, what we were trying to focus on at that point was not some of these alternate genres but um, there certainly is that sort of readership. I guess we were trying to focus a little bit more on... Um, alongside some of these other genres and, you know, graphic novels we didn't deal with before, but they're a a great genre and um, uh, something that Australian publishers are really interested in and promoting. We want to see if people are reading those kinds of things. I guess I'm interested from that um, civic empowerment um, line of angle to see um, about long form reading, you know, like it doesn't have to be a book, but if you're engaging with something over about two thousand words you know continuous prose that's where you get a little bit more facility you know with some of the things that'll help you a little bit along the life the life force but what's out there in the digital sphere I mean I I know what there is for me but not other people other people may not be younger people probably aren't tracking down um you know um overseas journalism the way Mm. that I do for some of my long reads um but in games literature, is, is, is it there? We do know that there are Minecraft books that you can find on your in your booksellers now. They're a spin-off, so it's the franchise going the other way. Um, in text, in game text, mm. um, something we haven't particularly targeted but we really do want to find out about that.
0: Uh, this is really fascinating and a discussion that I hope to hear more of, uh, especially as findings start to come out of the study. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Leonie Rutherford, um, to discuss some of this uh, really fascinating stuff that you're looking into. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, that was uh, Associate Professor Leonie Rutherford from Deacon's School of Communication and Creative Arts, who is talking about a study into the reading habits of youngsters and how they can be, you know, really uh, harnessing sort of digital um, platforms to try and connect them up with Goodreads, to try and kind of raise the number of people that are getting into a good book. Independently Yours, Triple R. 102.7.